0: Welcome to the Center for Grassland Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Margo McKendry, Program Coordinator for the Center. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Ed Hubbs, Habitat and Private Lands Manager at Spring Creek Prairie Audubon Center in Denton, Nebraska. Ed, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're gearing up for a busy season right now.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Like you said, we are uh, starting to get ready for our spring prescribed burn season, and that'll be uh, generally it starts up about as soon as the snow starts melting. We start to think about it, and then it'll run through the first part of May. Um, some people have a, a hard cut off at the beginning of May for migratory bird reasons, but it's kind of that March, April, May window that we're looking at for doing these burns.
0: To begin with, can you give us an idea of what a prescribed burn is and maybe how it can be used to replicate former wildlife effects on grasslands?
1: Sure. So we implicate prescribed burns, prescribed being the key words because it is a prescription. There is a plan that we as land managers and landowners have to write out a prescription to to conduct the burn. And that prescription carries along with it not just the reasons for why we're burning and how we're going to burn, but also a lot of the uh, like weather conditions and other parameters that need to be in place in order to safely burn. Because historically, we were looking at much more nature-induced fire. Fires versus these human induced fires. Um, and nature induced fires usually happened when things on the landscape were most flammable. Usually when it was hot, usually dry. Um, everybody hears and knows about lightnings starting fire and things like that. So a prescribed burn is just controlling the parameters in which a burn will happen to try to replicate a natural fire that would have happened anyway. And I say natural with a little bit of an asterisk because it wasn't always lightning strikes that have started fire. Sometimes there were other things. For years and years and and decades and decades, Native Americans also were lighting fires on the landscape as part of their um, everything from... Um, ceremonial uses to defense and just safety purposes around their own homes, as well as for increasing habitat and hunting lands for themselves.
0: So people have been deliberately using burns on prairie landscapes for a very long time then.
1: Yes, it, it happened, uh, it started long ago and really the, uh, we're actually in the, the least amount of wildfire time right now since European settlement started. Really, we have done a very, very good job, very successful job at suppressing fires, putting them out right as they get started or stopping them before they even get a chance to get started. Smokey the bear is a great example of how successful that fire stopping campaign was. And what people are starting to realize now is Yes, we may have stopped the fires, but all we were really doing was pushing this issue down the road um, because the fuel that was burned in those fires is still there. It's still on the land, but now it's piling up and there's more and more getting built up. It's not being consumed in fires or any other way. So it's building up that way. But that that's kind of where we're at, especially in the Midwest, is since this European settlement, we've really reduce the amount of burning on the landscape. And then there are some groups who now have started to realize the importance and are seeing both environmental, but also economical benefits of burning their properties is is going a long way for people. And it is starting to become more popular. There are certain parts of the country like the Flint Hills in Kansas, south of us, they burn large pieces of ground annually every year. And that has allowed them to stay in. Their habitat is More similar to what it was before European settlement on a landscape level than say it is in eastern Nebraska where I am Um, on a landscape scale, all the fire suppression has really changed the plant dynamics that are on the on the ground.
0: So you kind of mentioned why burns were somewhat common due to uh, Native Americans deliberately setting them or lightning strikes or things like that. But how did the burns influence the ecological processes on grasslands?
1: So when a a fire goes across the the landscape, you think of these stereotypical everything's consumed by the fire all that's left is black ash and char which in a prairie is actually a good thing because the growing points for the majority of our native prairie plants are going to be underground or right at the ground level at the base of the plant so if a fire comes through and burns off all of the top of of we'll say a little blue stem it'll burn off the top of the little blue stem but the growing point the growth buds are underground And so that grass will be able to regrow with the energy that it has in its roots without really being harmed that much. In some cases, it can be a really big benefit because it opens up sunlight to the plant. But that's the big difference between a lot of our native plants and especially our native grasses and forbs. And a lot of our non native or invasive species is that they don't tolerate the fire. They won't bounce back as quickly after a burn. And a great example that I like to point out to people is here at Spring Creek Prairie, we'll do a burn and sometimes less than 24 hours later, I will have cattle in that area where I burn. Now that can't be the only area they have access to. They have to have some other grass as well, but that grass will start growing if there is moisture in the ground it will start growing almost immediately um, and you'll have new green shoots usually within days if it's dry sometimes it can take a little, little bit longer but you'll have green shoots that come up and those shoots are really nutritious, not only to, to cattle, but to all kinds of wildlife. The new growth has the most nutrition, really high protein levels. And and it also, that new growth being nutritious also tends to draw in a lot of insects, which are very important as we think of the food food web and how it grows from the plants to the insects to birds and so on going up. And just the more nutritious that your base layer of that food web is going to be, the better everything else in that food web is going to survive. And so what we find is, generally speaking, it's a lot healthier and better nutrition food after a burn, which is one of the great benefits, as well as those other non-native species not being able to bounce back as quickly. After a burn, it really gives our native plants a chance to take off and have a head start for the year.
0: So you talked a little bit about what happens when um, burns occur, but you also mentioned suppressing burns. And I was wondering, can you touch a little bit more on what happens to grasslands when wildfires are suppressed?
1: Sure. I'll start off by saying that um, historically, as we understand it, before European settlement, the tall grass prairie, which is what we're in in the southeastern part of Nebraska, uh, the tall grass prairie would have burned about every three to seven years, kind of depending upon where you're at. If you're a, a drier point, maybe you're closer to that three year range. If you're a wetter site, maybe you're closer to the seven year range, but it would vary give or take from year to year. That's kind of the general window that we're looking at and. When you keep things in that window, it tends to favor, like I said, a lot of the native plants. When you get outside of that window, even if you still have fire, but they're very infrequent, you can lose that, that competitive edge that the native plants had. And so once that competitive edge is taken away, invasive plants can really take over. One of the ones um, that we particularly target in this part of the state as far as grasses are concerned is um, smooth brome, perennial cool season grass that tends to take advantage of the first warming up of the year and the last warm days of the year. So burning um, in April can really hurt that grass and set it back. That is part of the reason why April is such a popular time to burn. Another species to think about are when we think trees, those are a lot bigger. They take a little bit more time to grow and get established on a property, but that when we suppress fire, We allow the time for those plants to come in and establish good, healthy roots into the ground and any plant. But especially as we're talking invasives here, once they get that root system established, it's much harder to get rid of them than it was to just keep them off the property in the first place or to try to to eradicate them really early on in the infestation. So when we're suppressing these fires, we're allowing a lot of these non-native species to get a foothold into grasslands and into prairies where we otherwise... Wouldn't want them, again, from both an environmental standpoint, but also an economic standpoint, this can have uh, huge impacts on cattle raising and other things in the area.
0: So, Ed, can you talk to us a little bit about potential negative impacts of prescribed burning, which might include wildlife, soils, or other factors, please?
1: Sure. So the big, the big elephant in the room, the big negative with prescribed burning, or the big scary part of prescribed burning is what happens if the fire gets out of control that's the big negative that everybody looks at and that usually scares people away or at least has the shock factor to it. And that is really mitigated with our planning, with our prescription, our prescribed burn has a prescription. So that's by thinking ahead and really limiting the parameters in which we even uh, would put fire on the ground. That in itself really makes things safe, uh, makes sure we've we've thought things through, because in order to write this plan, you have to really think things through so you're prepared for it doesn't mean that it can't happen. Unfortunately, that's that's the reality of the business, but it does really mitigate those factors. So then the other big negative that comes up most often Um, And actually, this comes up to me more often than than anything with an escape fire is the smoke concerns. Smoke can have uh, a lot of factors for people, especially health related. um, When you think of asthma or people with other breathing conditions Um, and then COVID itself has brought up a whole other issue of concerns around, you know, smoke and health and air quality. That said, the majority of smoke impacts that we have in eastern Nebraska are actually not caused by local burning. It's not caused by anything that we in Nebraska are doing. Um, Not to say that we can't have effects with our smoke, but generally speaking, we are not burning on a large enough scale to have significant impacts that maybe other burns have, have had in the past. Two big examples that come up to really affect our air quality in the past decade or so have been a couple of wildfires that have occurred, in particular, California, and a lot of those fires have gotten media attention. Um, And we have had some hazy air and smoke from some California fires. We've also had some fires in Texas and Canada that have really, really affected our air quality. Folks in Lincoln might remember there was an air show that was canceled a few years ago. I think it was 2015, and that was canceled due to air quality and smoke concerns actually coming out of a wildfire in Canada. And that was just the way that the air flow was going when that fire was happening is it carried the smoke here to us in Nebraska and we were impacted by it. Uh, that does not mean that we don't pay attention to smoke and air quality when we burn. We do have, depending upon where your burn is located and its proximity to affecting other people, there are certain parameters and measurements that are taken into account to make sure that we're not going to negatively affect people um, as far as their quality is concerned. Um, So we take those things into consideration. Um, The other negative or potential negatives of prescribed burning, one that I have had heard as a concern, but in reality, it has not been so much for me is uh, soil erosion. I know early on when I got into burning, that was a concern for people was, well, if you burn up all the vegetation that's on top of the ground, it's going to rain and everything will wash away. What I have found is that it's not been the case. The root systems that are intact after a burn still do a great job of holding the soil in place. Now, you might get a little bit of runoff from, say, the ash that's on top of the soil after a burn that might wash off after a rain. And there could still certainly be slightly more erosion potential. But what I have found is that I've had very, very minimal erosion issues after a burn and far, far more significant benefits from the burn that outweigh any erosion concerns. And that is with having conducted a burn and then had an inch or more rainfall within 24 hours after the burn um, on multiple occasions. I've done that and still have not had the erosion concerns that a lot of people were worried about. So I would say from that standpoint, prescribed fire does not seem to be much of a negative impact. The the other thing that I'll talk about, and I have mentioned it other times in the interview here, is... Uh, the wildlife. There are, especially when you look at smaller wildlife, like insects, maybe even some small rodents, and the reptile population tends to be affected by this the most too. And that is just the fact of a fire is typically pretty fast moving and some animals can't get out of the way fast enough. Um, there are going to be some, some insects and some maybe reptiles and or small mammals that get consumed by the fire. Uh, that's unfortunate, but that is a reality of prescribed burns and of wildfires across any land. While there is some loss, there is a great number of those animals and wildlife who are able to hide underground or escape, you know, in some way or another. Maybe they find a wet spot or they hide under a rock, um, something that can't burn. Um, So we usually find that they're, you know, that's not really an issue. Um, But it is an unfortunate side effect of conducting a burn is there will be a few of those smaller animals that can't escape. But we will have, you know, within hours, a lot of those animals are coming back. And like I said, if there is soil moisture and the plants are able to grow, those insects will be all over that fresh new plant growth. And it won't be long before the other wildlife find it as well. You know, we will have hawks and things circling overhead, even while the fire is still going on because it's changed the the landscape bird's eye view, if you will, for them. They're able to hunt a little bit more efficient when they can see things that open that way. So things from that standpoint happen almost instantaneously. And even when we look at uh, bigger mammals like deer, I have, we put up trail cameras out here and I have pictures of deer coming into burn areas within a day or if not within a day, within a week. They're coming in and it, it seems to me that they're almost curious when they come across a lot of these newly burned areas. They seem to be walking around, milling around, inspecting versus going from A to B with a purpose like they usually do. Like I said, overall, I would say the native plants and animals will recover and respond to a burn almost instantaneously. It's healthy for prairies. There is also the other side of the coin of certain animals and plants that prefer not burned areas or prefer areas maybe that were burned but haven't been burned for a few years. One example of that is a Henslow sparrow, which is a, we'll say, relatively uncommon kind of bird. And we happen to have it at Spring Creek, the Audubon Center here. But a big part of that reason is because we rotate our burns and have areas that haven't been burned for a few years. So those areas that haven't been burned for a few years, build up more thatch and old growth and litter. And those areas are preferred by the Henslow sparrows and some other animals as well. Henslow's is a good example. Um, so that's one that we target to have this varying amount of time since burn, as well as varying amount of time since grazing in order to to have these different types of structures and different structure heights across the property. When you look at it from a Henslow Sparrows perspective, it takes years to recover from a prescribed burn. But by moving the fire around, not burning the whole property in any given year, we are able to have habitat for all the species of plants and animals that live on the property.
0: Great management technique then, right?
1: Yes. It's a very mobile and reactive management plan where we let what's going on in nature kind of dictate where to put the cows next or where to burn next is based off of, you know, what we're seeing in the field versus maybe a pen and paper plan that we put together.
0: So as you're talking about the management of these burns, can you talk some about what your objectives are for the burns also in regards to wildlife habitat? cattle grazing, like you were mentioned, and perhaps even hayland management?
1: Each landowner, each land manager has their own goals for a property. So you take those into account as you're thinking of prescribed burns. I'd say the main, one of the main reasons that people come to us are actually for they have land enrolled in like a CRP program or some other program um, where they need to do a mid-contract management of some sort. Burning is often an option. And so that's one of the ones that we do have a little bit of CRP here on Spring Creek Prairie's property. So we burn that when that time is due. Um, And we also help a lot of other landowners burn their property for that reason as well. But then we also have from a wildlife standpoint, whether or not you're in CRP, there's a lot of um, known benefits that have been studied that come with burning from a wildlife standpoint. We've also mentioned the invasive species standpoint that comes into play. Some of those, uh, depending upon the species of invasive plant that you're dealing with, you might change up the timing of, of your fire, whether it's spring versus fall or the intensity of, you know, you want a really hot fire. So maybe you pick a day with lower humidity, things like that. Um, but then there's also the, the economic side of things, which is the cattle grazing or hayland with prescribed burning being helpful to them. With grazing, I mentioned earlier, you're opening up more sunlight and nutrients for this fresh growth of new grass that you've now made uh, available by burning off the old the old litter the other thing that that maybe people don't always think about when it comes to grazing and and hay meadows when you burn is by burning that area you are removing all the old thatch all the old dead dried stuff from last year that stuff has minimal value in a hay bale And again, kind of minimum grazing value when compared to the green new growth that's coming up. So if you can remove all of that dead old growth, all that's left is brand new, healthy green shoots. You're going to get higher percentages of nutrition and protein and such in both your hay and in what the cattle are consuming. So it pays off that way as well.
0: You talk about the burn being a prescription that folks will want to follow and a plan being a big part of that prescription. But you also have talked about weather conditions, wind and humidity being important parameters. Can you expand a little bit on that?
1: Yeah. So the state of Nebraska has laws that say what is required to be in a prescribed burn plan. You as a landowner are responsible for putting this plan together with what is required to be in it and then taking it to your fire chief and they will approve it or not and give you maybe some additional parameters in which to consider for when you're doing your burn, things like that. Some of the most important things we look at with prescription are weather related, being the wind speed and wind direction. Not just for when the fire is on the ground, but also for the hours and maybe day or two after your fire is out or after you're done conducting the fire. Because there can still be smoldering embers and things that can still still be hot, still potentially could start another fire if we had a really strong wind and it picked up an ember and carried it, you know, a 100 or so yards away onto a spot that wasn't burned. Um, that's not unheard of. And so that is part of where the wind comes into play. We also look at humidity as a big factor. We look at relative humidity and how it's changing almost pretty much on the hourly level because grass is such a fine, thin fuel. I tell people to think of if you throw a newspaper into a fireplace, it burns up very quickly. It's a very thin, light material that's going to burn up fast versus if you throw a log in a fireplace, it burns for a long time. Well, when we're looking at our grasslands, when we're burning grass versus when we're burning, say, a tree pile or something, the changes in humidity are going to affect the grass much more quickly than they'll affect a log or even a large stick. Just because the grass is thin, it's wispy, it will give off and take up humidity at a much faster pace and much more in par with what the relative air humidity is doing. The other factors that we look at when we're planning a prescribed burn is What are we actually burning? Like I mentioned before, the the grass versus log way of looking at it, but also, you know, is the grass a foot tall or is it six feet tall? Because the amount of grass or other fuel that you're burning will greatly uh, determine how hot it gets, how tall the flames are and things like that. And so we will also look at what are we actually burning? Is this going to be a hot, fast moving fire like grass tends to be fast moving Or is it going to be bigger items, more sticks and logs and stuff, a slower moving burn? So we look at some of that too, as well as, okay, what's outside of the area we want to burn? So that way we know what's next to us. Is it really flammable? Is it something we need to be worried about You know, the next day, like I mentioned, an ember getting picked up by the wind and blowing into it? The other things we look at are maybe some non-flammable things, like is there a road close by that our smoke would impact? because we don't want to do anything to hamper, you know, vision on a road or things like that. So we will include that as we're planning our burn and we'll include that with the burn plan of, you know, which way is our smoke gonna go? Cause we don't want it to go towards schools, hospitals, any, you know, any sensitive areas mm-hmm. factor that we we look into and plan as we do these fires.
0: An additional question that I don't have marked down, Ed, but I'm just kind of curious. When folks are developing this plan and then administering it, are you finding most people do their plans on their own, or do they bring in professionals from maybe a burn association to do the burn for them?
1: Sure. So that's that's one of the things I'm glad you asked, because I wanted to point that out. There is no set form or template for this burn plan in the state of Nebraska. Like I said, there is a state state law that says what needs to be included in the burn plan, but there's not a a format or a document that you need to use. So it can look a few different ways, but ultimately it does need to have certain things in it that are required by law. And one of the best things I can tell people is if you are near or if there's a burn association that's operating near you, I highly recommend working with them. Um, in the southeastern part of the state here, we have tri-county prescribed burn association which works in Lancaster, Seward, and Saline counties. Generally speaking, uh, we do go outside of that window a little bit, depending upon where it's at. But as That Burn Association, I can speak to that because I'm the president of That Burn Association. We do help people with their burn plans, especially people new to the association. We help you write it, help you understand what needs to be in it, help with a lot of the more technical details. There are things that the landowner will have to supply themselves, like names and contact information for neighbors, things like that the landowner needs to do. So as a burn association, we work with the landowner to get the burn plan written. And we work with the landowner also to make sure that they understand what the burn plan says. We don't just write it for them and hand it to them because the landowner ultimately is the person who is signing off on the burn plan and who is taking it to the fire chief. So they need to understand what it says, not just sign it and hand it off. So we work with our landowners to make sure they understand their burn plan, can take it to their fire chief and get it approved. But that does not mean you need to be an expert by any means. Uh, we help people every year. One of my most common stories that I tell people is we'll get a call from somebody who maybe just inherited some family ground that was in CRP. And they don't know anything about how to conduct a prescribed burn on it. And they just need some help. We're used to helping people like that with next to no experience. Sure, we're going to ask you to carry your weight, you know, figure out the contact information for the neighbors, help find a volunteer or two body to help on the day of the burn. But we're going to step you through the process and make sure um, we cross the T's and dot the I's to make sure things are done safely, which is ultimately, you know, the most important part of this. The goal for all the burn associations in the state is more fire on the ground, but safely. So any way that, that we can help you. You know, we'll be happy to do it. The best way, you know, to get a hold of us here in this part of the state, if you just want to look up Tri County Prescribed Burn Association online, or you can send us an email at tricountyburn at gmail.com or at scp at audubon.org would get you to uh, my email to Ed Hubs. Either one of those two would connect you uh, to me and then we can get you onto the proper channels for the burn association. I will say that for the spring 2021 burn season, our burn association, Tri-County, is pretty full already for the 2021 spring burn season. Not saying you shouldn't contact us because we are looking at fall burns as well. Uh, that's never-ending process. So the more, like I said, the more fire we can get on the ground, the better.
0: It sounds like that collaboration uh, between a landowner and yourself can really help alleviate a lot of their concerns to have somebody come in and assist the way that you're doing. So folks wanting to do that should definitely get in contact with you. Ed, I want to thank you so much. This has really been interesting and I appreciate the time that you spent speaking with me today. Now, I know you provided some contact information earlier on, but if you'd like to repeat that now for everybody, that would be great.
1: Sure. So as I said earlier, if you want to get a hold of me again, my name is Ed Hubs. Uh, My phone number here at the Audubon Center is 402-797-2301. And my email is ed.hubs H-U-B-B-S, at audubon.org. You can reach me either of those two places. And if you are interested in information for the Burn Association, I can also connect you there as well uh, if you reach out to me at that phone number or email.
0: I should mention that Ed wrote an article for us in our March newsletter entitled Spring Prescribed burn season If you're interested in reading about that, please go to grassland.unl.edu. Thank you for listening.